Well, we are going through a series, a very short series, actually part two of a series we started in the summer called Behold Your God, where we're looking at the attributes of God. Last week, we looked at God's uh, self-existence. Today, we're looking at His unchangeableness, and very appropriately, on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about God's sovereignty. So this week, I've been doing a lot of thought, a lot of research, a lot of thinking about change. Uh, And one thing that I remember reading in a book, it said, in this world, change is the one thing that doesn't, right? In this world, change is the one thing that doesn't change, right? And that's very true. Everything changes, like it or not, good or bad. Everything seems to be fluid. Everything seems to be in flux. And the thing about change is, once you kind of get used to the change, well, what happens? <clears throat> Everything changes again, right? So I thought it would kind of be an uh, interesting pop culture thing. I wanted to look at some songs, quote some lyrics about change to see how we as a culture think about it. The problem was I couldn't decide which to choose. There were over 50 songs all dedicated to the concept of change. Everything as far back to the 60s to last year from The Birds and Blind Melon to Ziggy Stardust. Uh, no, well, Ziggy Marley. One, one of the Ziggies, they all write these songs about change. So I couldn't decide which of the lyrics to use, but what I did discover in reading, not all 50, but a few of them, there was a kind of pattern that came out. And that we have a very love-hate relationship with change. When things are good, change is bad. But when things are bad, guess what? Change is good. One thing I also found out was that that some of the strongest promises we make, based on these songs I read about change, one of the strongest promises we make is the promise not to change. One of the strongest promises humans make to one another is the promise not to change. But the reality is, in a world where there's still room for improvement, more to learn, ways to grow, things to discover. Change is a necessary part of reality. In a world where injustice prevails and hunger persists and evil abounds and the consequences of sin dominate, change is longed for in the human heart. And of all weeks, Passion Week, Easter Week, this week signifies to us that real lasting change is possible. Because 2,000 years ago when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, this Sunday, somewhere about this Sunday, so many years ago, everything changed, and that's what He intended. When Jesus rose from the grave, even humanity's slavery to death had now changed. Death, so immutable, so unmovable, so unconquerable, Jesus rising from the grave had even changed that. So change is a good thing or bad. It depends on the thing that's changing, doesn't it? And in our series on the attributes of God this morning, we're going to learn that God is unchangeable. We're going to talk about what that means and why that is important. The Bible says that He is the same according to Hebrews 13.8, yesterday, today, and forever, specifically how God is unchanging, or to use a $10 word, immutable, in His being and perfections, in His plans and purposes, in His promises to His people, and why that's actually more important than you've ever realized, not only to your own faith, but do you realize God's unchanging nature is responsible for our understanding of the world we live in today? That's a bold claim, so we're going to actually go to Scripture and see how we can make sense of that claim. 
So you have Bible, go to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. It's one of the most profound verses in the Bible. Last week when Tim spoke on God's self-existence, he launched us from this verse, and it's a fantastic verse that not only shows God's self-existence, but also God's unchanging nature. You see, when Moses in this narrative was tasked by God to be his hand of deliverance for his people Israel, Moses needed to say, well, who is this God that's sending me? That might seem odd to you, but keep in mind, the, the Bible wasn't written when Moses was around. Moses helped write the Bible, right? He wrote the first five books. So he didn't have the understanding of God that you and I have, certainly because we have Moses' writings. So when this is taking place, Moses says, well, when I go to Pharaoh and I go to your people, they're going to ask who you are. What do I tell them? It's a fair question. This is what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Tim rightly pointed out that this divine name refers to God's self-existence, that God does not require anything or anyone to exist. All He needs to exist, He has within Himself. You stop there for a second. I, I know Tim talked about this last week, but that's just a mind-blown kind of concept. Nothing in this universe has what's called a seity, self-existence, nothing. I know sustainability is a big buzzword in our culture about energy that's always self-replicating. There's no such thing. Even the sun in the sky does not have self-existence. Yet God has self-existence. There is nothing in the universe that can exist completely by itself except God. All bottled up in the name I am. But not only does it point to His self-existence, it also points to our point this morning that God is unchanging. God is immutable. His name refers not simply to an attribute of what He's like or uh, uh, something that He does or who He's related to, like your name or my name might. So if your last name is Smith, one of your ancestors was probably a craftsman, blacksmith, or silversmith. If your last name is Roadheaver, one of your ancestors um, sold products out of a cart because it means cart pusher, right? That's what my name means. So if you've ever bought a hot dog off of a cart on the sidewalk, you can thank me, okay? <laughs> or if your name is Robertson, you're the son of Robert. All of our names point to something else. They're outside of ourselves. God's name points to existence itself. I am. I'm not becoming, I'm not maturing, I'm not growing. I am the sum total of all perfection, which by definition also means I'm unchanging. I am. Amazing how much truth packed into one verse. So let's talk a little bit about what that means and why that is important for all of us. God is unchanging. God is immutable. What it means, uh, Socrates, the Greek philosopher, said, the beginning of all knowledge is a definition of terms. That's really smart. So let's define what we mean by this. Definition's on the screen. God is unchanging in His being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet, God does act and feel emotions. And he acts and feels differently in response to different 
situation. So when we say that God is unchanging, God is immutable, we're not saying He's some stoic, uh, unfeeling throne of divine perfection up there that feels nothing about human plight or joy. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying when we say that God is unchanging is that in His essential nature, the way He responds and acts to His creation is dependable that He will fulfill all of His commitments and covenants, that He will make good on all the promises He's given to us, and that we can bank our lives upon it. In short, when the Bible teaches that God is immutable, it means it in the sense of the word that we see men and women who give meritable vows to one another, right? When we see a marriage, what the Bible is getting about God's unchangeable nature, it's in the same way that a man and woman come together and make these lifelong promises of covenant fidelity to be together, that no matter what changes on the peripheral, that, that yes, of course, the man and the woman will change, right? I mean, we've all changed. Uh, imagine, look at your old wedding pictures to what you are now, and I did that this week, and I had the long shaggy hair and the goatee and the earrings, and I don't have any of that stuff now. I didn't have any gray in my hair either, but we change. But the core covenant that's being made, we're saying we'll never change. I'll never fluctuate. I'll never, I'll never vary in my love for you. Right? That's why we love weddings, right? That, that's one of the reasons we love to go to weddings, because there's something so right about the bedrock immutability of certain things, that in a world that's constantly shifting, it is so right to see these certain things will not fluctuate. We make a covenant, and that's why we go to weddings, and it's, it's so right to hear those promises made, right? For better or worse, Richer, poorer, uh, sickness, health. Imagine how lame a wedding would be if it also included, unless I change my mind, right? That this wouldn't have the same draw. So when the Bible talks about God's immutability, it's meaning it in a specific kind of sense. It's referring to His being and His perfections, His plans and purposes, His promises. It's not the same to say that He's completely unmovable, Right? No, God is moved by what happens in our lives. He's just immutable, and His purposes and plans will not change. So let's look at some passages that teaches us loud and clear what it means, and then our second point is why it's important. So God is unchanging in His being in perfection. Um, you don't have to write all these verses down. Again, I've put them in our community group questions I posted this morning on the city. So Numbers 23, 19, and by the way, there are so many more we could put up here, but I just put a handful. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Here's Psalm 102, verse 25, 27. It's probably one of the best verses on God's unchanging in his being. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Keep in mind, when, when Psalm 102 was written, they had no concept that the sun had an expiration date. We know that now, right? We know that the fusion in the sun will one day burn itself out. They had no idea, and yet God was telling them 
These things that seem like will never change, they'll change, but I won't. Malachi 3.6, probably the, the most simplest way you can put it. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. All right, very good. Don't need to say any more. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, if we even change, He remains faithful. Why? Because He cannot deny His own essence, His faithfulness, His immutability. He can't deny Himself. Finally, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or even shadow due to change. You think about the metaphors, especially in the Old Testament, that talk about God. Many of them have at their core God's immutability. Right? So, God is considered a rock, a foundation, a mountain. Every one of those is a picture of stability and permanence. Now, keep in mind, this is pre-modern literature, so they didn't understand, they didn't have things like drill bits and dynamite, right? Oh, there's a rock, let's just blow it up or drill right through it. That wasn't the way it was. To move a rock required a small army of individuals, so by and large, if you encountered a rock or stone, you didn't move it. It moved you. You went around it. It was a symbol of safety in the hot desert sun. You could take rest in its shade. It was a symbol of permanence, protection. You could hide behind it. God is this symbol of not moving, that He is immutable in His being and perfections, but God is also unchanging in His purposes. Psalm 33, 11. This is a wonderful verse. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. I love Hebrew poetry. Um, usually the second line unpacks the first line. It, it's not necessarily intended to add anything to. So, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to every generation. This, this general statement about God's counsel standing forever is supported by several passages in Scripture that talk about the specific plans and purposes of God that were made from eternity past coming to realization. And in so many ways, even down to things like the way Jesus would actually teach. Matthew 13, 35. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden when? Since the foundation of the world. Or the fact that the believer's inheritance in Christ has been waiting since the beginning of time. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you when? From the foundation of the world. God's purposes from eternity past will come to fruition. Ephesians 1, 4 and 11, speaking about our salvation. Again, the top, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. Look at verse 11 below that. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, not some things, not most things, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. See, it's clear that the Bible is teaching that once God decides that something ought to be, there is nothing that can stay His hand or thwart His will. He brings it to pass without question. 
And here's something that's even more mind-blowing. Really to say that God decides, we need to put that in air quotes, shouldn't we? What, what happens when you decide? You're looking at two options and you're weighing the pros and cons of either one and you decide for the one that's most favorable to you. God doesn't have to do that. Why? Another attribute of God, He's omniscient. God doesn't decide anything. He just knows. He doesn't have to weigh in the balance anything. He just knows all things. He knows all factuals and counterfactuals of every possible equation in the world. Every decision you're going to make, every decision you could have made, every decision you didn't make, He knows the exponential ramifications of everything you could have or would have or didn't do. Mind-blowing, isn't it? So even to use language to start to comprehend who He is is helpful, but still not accurate in understanding who God is. But for the sake of argument, when God decides to do something, it's going to happen, even if He didn't actually technically decide to do it, because He just knew. The prophet Isaiah says, God is wholly unique in this way. So I want you to turn and see Isaiah saying this. Isaiah 46, Isaiah 46, you can keep your finger in Exodus if you like. Isaiah is kind of in the middle of the book. When I'm just reading one verse, I have no problem throwing it up on the screen because then, you know, so you don't have to turn to it. But when we're going to actually read a few verses, I want you to see Scripture teaching this for itself. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11, Isaiah the prophet writes this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me listen to this line, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. There is no God like this God unchanging, immutable. So, God is unchanging in His being and perfections. God is unchanging in the purposes He intends, but God is also unchanging regarding His promises. God is unchanging regarding His promises. Once God promises something, He will not be unfaithful to it. Once God says He'll do something, He will bring it to pass. As a matter of fact, we could summarize the entire Bible in four words based on this attribute of God. Here we go. So the Old Testament, promises made. In the New Testament, promises fulfilled. Based on the character of God's unchanging nature, we can describe the whole Bible in those four words. Promises made, promises fulfilled. God is unchanging in His promises to His people. Every promise He made to the people of God in the Old Testament, their deliverance, their rest, His presence with them, He fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ. Just think about that. Christ was the people of God's ultimate deliverer from their ultimate slavery. Christ finished and fulfilled the work of the law and granted to the people of God rest. Christ, one of His throne names was Emmanuel, which meant what? God's presence with us. And there are hundreds and hundreds more promises made and fulfilled. The point is, God is unchanging in His promises. They may not always be fulfilled the way we intended or anticipated, 
but He always fulfills His promises. And even when they're not the way we anticipated, they're always much better, aren't they? Now, you might be tempted to think, wait a minute, I I know, I can't pinpoint exactly where, but I know God changes His mind. Are you saying that He's unchanging? I know I've read somewhere in here that that God thought something and then changed His mind. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, it was Noah. That was right. Noah goes into the city and he says, God's going to judge you. They repent and God says, oh, I changed my mind. I'm not going to wipe them out. See, there's one. Or, or Moses and the Israelites, that's right. Moses goes up to the mountain and then the people of God start worshiping the false, uh, false calf and everything. And God gets mad and says, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Or Abraham and, and Sodom and Gomorrah, God planned to wipe them out. But Abraham said, if I can find 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? He says, okay. See, see, God changed his mind, right? Isn't that? So God's not immutable. Right? You might have been thinking that, or maybe not. Maybe I just put a stone in your shoe, and now you're thinking about it. It's a good question, though, isn't it? That I don't have time to answer this morning, okay? <laughs> Wait. But if that is the question you have, and hopefully thinking Christians are thinking this out, how can God be immutable? But we see so often in Scripture language that describes events that describes that God does seem to change, right? We need to be honest with all of Scripture here. So we actually dedicated one whole service to this. It was January 31st, 2016. So the sermon was entitled Divine Responsibility and Human No, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. I encourage all of you go on our website under resources and sermons and just type in the name or the search box somehow find it, but it's there. I just checked it this week. January 31st, 2016, Divine Sovereignty Human Responsibility. How do we re- reconcile this unusual dynamic because it's a good one to wrestle through. But what you're going to find is that God's immutability and and, and these seemingly apparent changes are not contradictions of each other at all. God is immutable in His being and perfections, His plans, His promises, and His purposes. I say, okay, we've seen enough Scripture. I understand what that means. I see the Scripture. So what? Well, why is that important? That's our second point. God is unchanging. God is immutable. Why it's important. I I grant you, this attribute of God, of all the attributes we could have talked about, might seem a bit abstract, certainly abstract to warrant a whole sermon on it. But perhaps if we ask the question from the other direction, it becomes clearer. What would it be like if God could change? What would it be like if God could change? Now, now think about this. If God could change, that change would either be for the better or for the worse. I mean, that's really, there's no other way this is going to happen. He either gets better at being God or he's worse at being God, okay? That's fair enough. If God could change, he's either going to get better or worse. If God could change for the better then He is not the maximum God. He is not the most trustworthy being that you could have trusted when you trusted Him in your conversion, could He have been? If God could actually get better, then the God you trusted in years ago with your life, by the way, was not completely trustworthy of that trust, was He? Because He obviously needs to improve. You need now God 2.0, and then maybe later God 3.0. 
But then the question is, at what upgrade version is God actually, okay, now you're where I need you to be. Now I commit my life to you. Right? It's kind of like buying the new iPhone or whatever. It's like, well, the next one's coming out, so I don't want to buy this one, but uh, you just got to jump in, right? That's not how that works with God. God's maximally perfect and unchanging. But if God could actually become worse in His, in his being, in His perfections, what kind of God might He become? Could He become just a, a little evil, right? I mean, could He become just a little evil rather than being wholly good? And if He could be a little evil, what's to stop Him from becoming really evil or wholly entirely evil? And there's nothing you and I could do about it because He's also omnipotent. So if God could change, we are faced with the possibility we could live in a universe forever dominated by a holy, evil, omnipotent God. That sucks. I mean, that's an understatement. So I ask you, why would you trust a God that could change? Why would we ever want to commit our lives to a God that could actually change either for the better or for the worse? It does not bring us any assurance to think that somehow God can change Himself. The fact that He is an immutable God is what gives us confidence. Could you imagine if God could change in His purposes and promises to us? Imagine how those conversations would go. I told you I'd never leave you or forsake you, psych. I'm going to do both, right? Or... I know I promised I'd come back for you, but I found someone better, so I changed my mind. If God could change in His promises, how can any of us have the assurance of eternal life? How could any of us bank that our sins have been forgiven like He said? How can any of us trust anything that's written in this book of His presence, of His assurance, How can we have any confidence that we can trust on any of this if He changes? What about if He changed in His omnipotence? Maybe His being stays the same, but what about His omnipotence changing? So His plans and purposes for us don't change, but His ability to pull those off change, and He can't do it in the first place. So He's well-meaning and benevolent, but powerless to do anything. You see, a little reflection on the immutability of God shows why this attribute of Him is so important, not only for the grounding and foundation of our faith, but actually even understand the physical world around us. You go, what? I don't, I don't, I don't, I can kind of see what you mean about our faith, but how do you get that our understanding of the world around us? If you know a little bit about uh, scientific history, you know that many of the men that developed the hard sciences had their beginnings in these fields partly by understanding that the immutability of God by logical extension applied to the physical world that He created, and so the scientific method could be developed. So men like Nikolai Copernicus and Johannes Kepler in astronomy, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday in mathematics and magnetism, Robert Boyle, William Thompson Kelvin in chemistry and physics could understand that the world would function in predictable, repeatable cycles and patterns as an extension of God's immutability making a created order that would function in the same way that can be studied, analyzed, and systematized because the world's dependent on the complete trustworthy of an infinite, unchanging God that His creation would be likewise enough to base scientific principles upon upon it. 
which is why the sciences, the hard scientists evolved and flourished wherever the Christian worldview and the gospel had pervasive impact in culture. Without which an understanding of God's unchanging nature and immutability, we'd have no reason to believe any process we repeated would point to us any kind of true knowledge. So, what we might not have thought so important to begin with upon reflection becomes not only important for understanding the foundation of our faith, but our understanding of the physical world begins to unravel if God is not an unchanging being. In other words, the words of Psalm 19 and Romans 1, 19 and 20 are true. All of creation speaks of the attributes of God and His immutability and unchanging nature is one of them. And here's an amazing thing. This shows me why humans didn't write this, because if you or I were to write about a deity, we would not think it important to write about the fact that that deity does not change. We would just think it's not important. But yet all throughout the Scriptures, God is making the case, even before we could even appreciate it, that He will not change ever. And so what seems a bit abstract actually becomes really foundational for our approach to God. We started our time this morning in Exodus 3.14, so let's come full circle, circle to that passage, but via one of the Gospels. John, particularly John chapter 8, Jesus and the Pharisees are having a conversation of all things about lineage. And then in verse 58 of John 8, Jesus drops this bomb on the Pharisees and says, before Abraham was, I am a direct allusion to Exodus 3.14. You see, Jesus was claiming, whatever is true of God is true of me. I and God are, in essence, one and the same, which is exactly why the Jews picked up stones to throw at Him. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when He said that, and they got so enraged, they wanted to kill the man. Unlike Jesus, unlike the Father, you and I are always changing, good or bad, we constantly change. Our affections for one another change, our affections for God change, our commitments change, our pursuit of Him changes. According to Jesus, that what is true of God is true of Him, and because of that, He is the perfect Savior for humanity. As Adam alluded to it, Jesus was unwavering. He was immutable in His desire to fulfill the will of God. He was immutable in His pursuit to fulfill the law of God. And because of that, anyone who puts their trust in Christ, in His unchanging, immutable work, does not have to depend on the changing, fluctuating, moody fluctuations of our own natures and hearts. Why, when it comes to our eternal salvation, would we trust in anything or anyone else, including ourselves, when we have one like Christ who never wavers, never moves? Did He then, nor will He now, as He intercedes and is acting as our advocate before the Heavenly Father? Until, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, we are finally changed, that is the one in whom we should trust to never change. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are grateful that your attribute, this attribute, your unchanging nature, your immutability, like so much of our lives, seems in insignificant. Yet upon reflection, we realize it's almost foundational for the way we get through our lives. 
Father, and you do not change. You could not love us more, nor could you love us less. But Father, we are changing beings. And we ask that you would change our affections, change our hearts to love you more, completely and purely, to love the things of this world less. Change us in that way, Lord. And Father, we recognize even the desire to be different, to be changed this way, is a gift from you. So we ask that you give it and for us to receive it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.